Welcome to Syntax, where we deliver tasty treats for web developers. This episode of Syntax is brought to you by Lauren Stewart's new course called The Intro to the Serverless Framework. What is serverless? You've probably heard people saying serverless or functions as a service or cloud functions. And this is essentially something that runs on Amazon's AWS. And you can write these functions with, you can write them with any language, but this one is specifically Node.js. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as well as have a couple courses to give away part part way through the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Syntax. Today, we're going to be talking all about our stacks. Uh, this is actually something I get a lot of questions about, and it's it's something that I just recorded a quick little YouTube video on about over about over a year ago, and uh, it just explained like what is my stack, what are all the different pieces. Uh, that that get it up and running. And Scott has also built his his own course platform. So we're sort of going to dive into the nitty gritty details of uh, what we use and why we use these things at uh, at a different level. So uh, welcome, Scott. How are you doing today? Oh, uh, yeah. I've actually honestly been doing better. Uh, just getting over <laughs> the entire family, dogs included, with uh, food poisoning. So uh, just uh, slowly uh, returning to normal life here. So yeah, but yeah, overall, I guess it can't. You know, other than that, I can't complain. That is that is dicey. So it was uh, what rotisserie chicken. Oh, well, that that's the suspect right now. It was either that or baby carrots. We honestly have no idea. We're trying to think of like <laughs> what are all of the things that uh, my wife and I and the dogs all the ate. Dogs, like oh, let, man. let's pin that in. And there's only a couple things. So, oh. is, but the baby didn't get sick. Yeah, the baby. Thank God. Oh. The, you know, the the baby has been like the cause for us not sleeping for so long, and now all of a sudden, like the other night, we were just like, thank God, the baby is like. <laughs> the baby is taking care of himself. He's like the most functional person in our family right now. Yeah, we we had the stomach flu, uh, like the entire family when we, we had, I don't know, like a six month old. Uh, and uh, she was just, everybody's just puking and like passing out. And like, oh. I remember like Googling, like, is there like a nurse that can just come and help <laughs> us? Because it's just the worst feeling in the world. Yeah. And <laughs> since then, I realized if, if you're a parent, hot tip, buy a jug of Pedialyte, which is like Gatorade for kids, because it's like one of the only things that will uh, help your kid get hydrated when they're always puking and whatnot. Oh, nice. So, I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah. Hot tip. That's my sick pick for today is Pedialyte. <laughs> <laughs> a literal anyway. sick pick. <laughs> Let's get into our stacks. I thought maybe we'll we'll kick it off like explaining um, a little bit about our stacks. Like what what does it all entail from uh, selling stuff to viewing? And I don't know. I know that we both have affiliate systems built in. So uh, do you want to just give us uh, a high level overview of of your of like what it does? Not necessarily the technology, but what your stack does. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the reasons uh, when I was first starting to look into to building this, actually the site used to was originally on, on Drupal, and that was just because it's what I was using all the time, so it was easy for me to put it on Drupal and use their importer to grab everything from YouTube. And then when I started to research like building a new stack, I had all these like pros and cons of of maybe like using a, a you know like a Shopify or something like that for my store. And then I started to weigh how much custom stuff I needed to get in there and how much real tweaking I would have to do yeah. uh, integrating with those APIs. And, and you know, I have all these these big plans of, you know, automating a ton of stuff so I can push it up to YouTube and then it automatically collects all my stuff. So yeah, big, big picture. I just, I needed a sort of a really 
flexible system that I could customize entirely and have it work really nicely with uh, the YouTube API specifically, but as well as that some some others. So um, that that's pretty much high level of sort of why I wanted to go custom with this. Um, but yeah. That's pretty sweet. And then you have, um, like, you have obviously the the checkout experience that you've built in, and then you have the the viewing experience. So someone that signs up for your course, they're able to get access to the courses, correct? Yeah. So there's a, a pretty intricate role system, um, an account system, and so there's maybe several major components where you have the tutorials, the playlists, right? You have the store section where you have products, um, you have user accounts which tie in what they get access to, what they don't get access to. Um, and so sort of how those things interact and work together. Uh, because if you are a pro, you get all of the products on the site for free. So, um, you know, these, these role systems and things that need to all be interconnected, uh, between the store and the site itself, which are actually now one site. They used to be two entirely separate domains. Um, I know, I know we mentioned that at the beginning of the first few episodes of this podcast when I migrated them together. It's yeah. actually one of the best decisions I've made for this platform <laughs> is moving them together. That's really neat. I just added uh, a card on our show list ideas of role systems. That's just something I get questions about a lot where you have like intricate uh, being able to edit things and not edit things or you can view it but not update it or you can create one but not update it more than three times. So it'd be kind of a neat episode to chat about yeah. how, how to accomplish that. Yeah, and, I, and and another thing I think would be interesting is talking about sort of like administrative tools because that's a whole other section of this site that I'm almost bummed people don't get to see because I've put so much work into this admin tools section yeah. and I'm the only person that uses it. And, <laughs> and I was like totally like ignoring the design aspect of it and recently I went through and I made this whole like admin theme for it and it's very, I don't know if you know the style out Outrun, which is like Outrun or Vapor Wavy. It's, it's like very like 1980s sort of looking like... <laughs> Like, Googling this. It's like that race car and, game where the lines are coming at you. Yeah, it's exactly like that. And and I I would show it off more, but um it's not totally done. But I I just started like doing all this stuff for the admin section and I'm like, no one's seeing this but me. Uh I guess maybe I shouldn't spend so much time on it, but it's a nice little playground. You yeah. Know? When, yeah, whenever I have like a day where I just don't feel like doing anything, what I'll do is I'll tear off some sort of like wish list item of mine for my, my admin backend and, and implement that. It's, it's always fun to, to do that sort of stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. So what about you? What's your, what's the high level of your stack looking like? Yeah. So I, I initially, a lot of people ask me like, why do you build your own when there's so many platforms out there? And uh, I initially built my own because uh, my first product was a book and videos and there was no, there's nothing that would have the ability to do both of those. So that's kind of why I initially did it. Um, and it's sort of morphed into, I, I lovingly call this thing the boss monster um, mm. because it is a entire stack that powers all of my courses, um, all of my paid video courses, as well as all the freebies. Um, you have this kind of unified dashboard where you can log in and you see all of your courses for all the different domain names. Um, I do things a little bit differently where I, I launch a different domain name for every single course that I do. Um, and what I was previously doing is that every one of my free courses and every one of my paid courses, I think I had like two out at the time, they were all, all of the free ones were just like static site, like had a gulp file that I would gulp out. Um, and then all of my paid ones were separate, uh, node instances. And that's just a, as you know, it's a nightmare to, to have to maintain these things, mm -hmm. even with like Git and version control. So, 
Um, I, I sort of like peeled it back and, and rebuilt it to handle multiple domain names. It's all just like one instance running behind all of these different domain names. So again, I like I have pretty custom use case for the way that I approach things. So uh, I was I was happy to to build my own for that. Yeah, um, and it like it becomes a nice playground, right? I mean, you learn a whole lot while doing it. It gives you a chance to experiment with some stuff and uh, allows you to sort of show off your skills in something that's like really feels like yours. Right? I mean, it's your yeah. your platform. Exactly. And anytime I want to like maybe like tinker with something, maybe add a feature, try like some sort of uh, different marketing techniques or uh, I integrated parity purchasing power for different countries. Anytime I want to do anything specific to that, I just have to uh, hop into my code base and I can start building stuff on top of that. So, yeah, it's uh, I know developers always like to, to build their own thing, but um, it's been I think it's been really good for my business to have had built my own thing. Yeah. But um, so what is in it? Um, it? Obviously, the the whole entire purchasing uh, checkout system, the the whole free course um, checkout system for that, the course dashboard where you can manage your courses and change your email and uh, watch, obviously watch all of the courses. You can download the courses depending on what level, because that's another thing that I did is like uh, a lot of my courses, the, the beginner level, you can only stream them. Whereas if you buy a master package, you can stream and download them. Uh, so you have to be able to to manage that. Um, there's a whole affiliate system baked into the back end. So a lot of my sales come through um, an affiliate system where people who have large audiences refer my courses um, and then I give them a 40% cut of the profits from that specific sale. So uh, I've got this uh, affiliate system that comes in, generates reports, I can do payouts through it and, and all that good stuff. Um, there's just a lot of stuff sort of uh, built into obviously coupons are, are a big thing for me as well so a lot of like little things built into it and it's been uh, been a blast to be able to um, build this from scratch yeah yeah it's funny with things like coupons I, I guess this is sort of the the nice thing about having your own platform I mean honestly like if you're going with a pre-existing cart it would already have coupons baked in or something like that. But let's say you were existing on like a platform uh, that didn't have something like that and you need to add it in. You could do it at a very, uh, because it's totally yours. Like I initially with coupons, I just had it as a, a private JSON file where it's checking the coupon and to see if that coupon is in that JSON file or whatever. And that's how I did coupons. But then, you know, as my needs grow, I want to be tracking who's using coupons and I want to say, oh, you can only use this one how many times and whatever and have it yep. be a legit system. You can build upon that and build upon that. But you don't have to do it all at once. It can. It's you have like intimate knowledge of this this platform, so you can make little things like that happen at a time. Yeah, that's hilarious. That's exactly how my coupon started off. Was just a JSON file with an amount that you can yep. take off, and then uh, and now it's it's a lot more robust. The ability to lock down coupons by country, or you can issue a fixed amount coupon like eleven dollars or a twenty eight percent off uh, coupon if you like. You can. Uh, pretty much lock it down in in any way you want, and every time you want to introduce some sort of new locking system, you just have to write another function and extend that uh, all of the different checks that it goes through. It's pretty neat. Exactly. Cool. So uh, maybe we'll we'll start about talking about like what is the the like the main language and framework that each of ours is is built in. Why don't you go ahead and yeah. kick that off? So mine's a pretty just straight JavaScript platform overall. So on uh, my back end here, I'm using Meteor, which is a node platform. Um, it provides you with a bunch of really nice stuff. So uh, do you want me to go in depth about um, that platform right now? Yeah, the yeah let's, let's hear it. 
Let's do the back end. Yeah, so so for my back end, I chose Meteor initially because it was uh, easy to get up and running, right? Um, you don't have to spend time writing an API. You don't necessarily have to spend time having, you know, in Express, you have your, your API, your backend, and your front end are so separate. But in, in Meteor, it makes it a lot more combined, so to say. I mean, one of the initial selling points is that you could do database writes from the client. Obviously, that's not secure, and that's not something you should have in production. So uh, as you grow, even though they're they're you know, getting more separated, they're still a little bit way more connected than something like an Express site or at least uh, having your own API. So for instance, for me, it's easy to call methods on the server simply from the client by uh, calling that method. And what's nice is it can do all the validation client side. And if it passes that validation, then it can move on to the server side and perform whatever actions it needs, mm-hmm. um, checking permissions and roles and stuff like that. So I, I chose this, this Meteor node platform because it allowed uh, really nice um, just integration between front end and back end, and not to mention it, it integrates with front end tools like React really well. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, it's it's just straight Node stuff. And then anytime you need to sort of communicate with the front end, you're using Meteor stuff, but it also has like accounts baked in. So I don't have to think about accounts. I don't have to think about other platforms for accounts. I don't have to think about other libraries. It just works. It's just baked in. And, um, and I've been a huge fan. I know there's some people that have concerns about Meteor in various ways, but I mean, if you go to the Level Up tutorial site, um, you refresh it or go to this site, man, that thing loads so quickly. <laughs> yeah. um, and so the performance concerns, I think, are, are totally overblown, just knowing how to write performative sites and stuff like that. Uh, also, I think you know some people get scared from Meteor because of the reactive stuff where... Um, you know, everything's done through WebSockets. Typically, if you're uh, updating something, everyone's seeing those updates in real time. But you can turn off that real time stuff or you can call uh, a method to get your data or just like hitting an API and you, you don't have to use the reactivity. So uh, the reactivity is is free. It comes with it. It's nice, but you don't need it. Uh, and you don't, certainly don't have to have it. Uh, so yeah, that's pretty much why I went with uh, Meteor as my backend stack. It's it's basically just a a node site and has some nice little features for communicating with the front end. Um, and yeah, I probably would have used MongoDB anyways. I think that's another concern people have. We can get into database stuff a little bit more yeah. anyways. But yeah, so uh, because of that, yeah, Meteor seemed like a, a nice platform to me to be able to go up and quickly and add new features quickly. Awesome. That's pretty sweet. My stack is fairly similar to that, uh, with the exception of the Meteor part. So mine is a a Node stack. Um, I think I initially built it back when it was like Node 10 or Node 12. I built it many, many years ago. Um, And I built it, I've been sort of upgrading with Express as as we go along. Um, So it's a Node stack. I'm using the Express framework on top of that to handle all my routes and all my rendering. Um, I'm a big fan of Express. I know that there's a lot of different frameworks out there, but uh, I've been coding in Express for years and years. And actually, my my Learn Node course at learnnode.com you should buy it. Uh, that's pretty <laughs> much that stack is pretty much exactly the stack that my course platform runs on. Um, and I was really proud of that course because uh, it, it shows everything that I've learned over the like five years of uh, doing node development. Um, what else goes along with that? Uh, Passport JS is probably one of the bigger modules that I have there, and that handles all of my uh, all of my sessions. Actually, Ex- Express has a sessions package that you you install there. Um, 
And then I'm using uh, Passport.js in order to to log people into their actual system. Um, and then I, I also um, I don't have you don't have to log in before you buy a course. So that's something I see a lot of people doing on their course platforms. Is they I don't know if you have this or not, but when they when you want to buy something, they make you log in first, and mm-hmm. that you have huge drop off there if if you make people create an account first. Uh, so what I do is I just take their money. And and record their email, and then once you click through to the email, it will uh, it will either already be attached to an account, or it will ask you to then create an account, uh, which will then attach that purchase to. Nice. So, yeah, I do actually. I require you to make an account, but it's um, you don't have to verify your account or something like that. It's just you click on the car or you click add now, sign in, whatever, that's it. And like a, a one sort of step sort of yep. thing. But I actually just implemented that because I had it in place how you do before. Um, and I was seeing issues where people were losing their uh, email receipts and stuff like that. And then maybe they uh, sometime down the line would want to make an account and then add that account in that the orders, their previous orders to their account that they created, you know, last or they they made a purchase last year, then they created an account this year and they wanted those to collect each other and stuff like that. Um, I, I was just dealing with a lot of issues there. I think it, it was a little bit easier for me to just uh, since I have the subscription service and all this stuff to uh, require you to log in first. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. It's, it's certainly a lot easier uh, on the, the customers. And I often have people will buy something and then a week later they're getting ready to to take it and and uh for whatever reason they don't click the link in the email that i sent them uh but uh then they they're a little bit confused as to like how do they actually get access to it because they try to like sign in but they haven't yet created an account so there's Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of like limbo room there that that you give up in in terms of being able to make checkout as easy as possible yeah for sure so what about database on the back end? I think we this is going to be fairly simple. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I use MongoDB. Do you use it, MongoDB? Yes, I also use MongoDB. Um, and, and, and there's so many haters with MongoDB. I've never been one to get on like the hate train about anything really myself. But like, yeah, MongoDB, it's it served me well. I don't need a crazy relational anything in it. It, like I said, it's the default database for Meteor. Uh, right now, it's sort of a major pain to try to use anything else. Um, so I, I was I was fine with that. I didn't have to do any major setup for it, and it just works. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I don't have the largest app in the world, um, but uh, I do have a couple of my collections have a couple hundred thousand uh, entries in them, and I don't have any trouble, but I, I know people get into millions and and uh, dozens of millions of things and then they start to run into trouble or you try to build like an extremely relational like MongoDB mm-hmm. does do relationships we have quite a bit of them in in my note course um, but I know that people who do heavy relational stuff or have something like Twitter uh, much prefer to use like a Postgres or MySQL mm-hmm. for something like that but uh, I really like MongoDB I use the Mongoose uh, package to interface with the database um, that is all promise driven which allows us to use a sync await uh, in order to, to have really nice clean flow control all the way through our controllers so um, I've been been very happy with, with MongoDB um, and uh, especially like I don't know if we can we can talk about like how do you interface with your database, but um, when I initially got started, 
Um, I didn't have any administrative tools at all. It was just a database and dumping info. And if, if anybody asked me to do something super simple, like update their email address or uh, change the name on a package or, or anything like that, I'd, I just uh, would pop open a, a GUI to, to interface with MongoDB. Um, the one that I use all the time is called Mongo Hub. Um, mm. But recently, um, MongoDB, the company, uh, has has put out their own product which is called uh, MongoDB Compass. Um, it's just a fantastic GUI interface in order to interface with your database and sort of get like a high level overview of like what kind of data you have, aggregations of that data. It's just like really nice. We use uh, that in my node course as well. Nice. Cool. I haven't seen Compass before. I use uh, Studio 3T. Have you seen that Ooh, before? 3T, yeah. no. It's not like the, the prettiest app or something like that. But it's uh, very full featured and it allows for like really nice importing and exporting. Oh, and this was Mongo Chef. Yeah, this was yeah, Mongo I Chef. I have used this, yes. Yeah, um, it's it's nice. It's It has a lot of features and um, especially because you can interface and pull in, like it, it makes pulling in, like if I want to pull in from my production database into my development database, um, just to bring in all the products or tutorials, I can do that in like one click. It's like copy from this database to this one, import all those records, go. And it's, That's sweet. it's super nice. It, it looks like one of those, those tools that does absolutely everything under the sun and is amazing. Uh, and then it looks like it's built in Java or whatever, yeah. you know, like those apps absolutely. that you get. Like, uh, what was I working with the other day? Um, Audacity. What an mm -hmm. ugly program, right? Yeah, but it just terrible. does so much and it's amazing and it's free. So uh, <laughs> yeah, Mongo Chef is, is another good one as well. But pretty happy with that one. Yeah. Um, and so you said you use Mongoose. Um, and Meteor you do is very pretty much the exact same. It's just a Meteor interface for Mongo. Um, your standard finds and aggregation stuff and you publish that data and then there's something called um, mini mongo it allows you to use mongo on the front end to do your your finds and stuff like that directly on the front end uh, for whatever data you've had published so yeah that's pretty much how i'm integrating there that's pretty sweet and i, I should also say um a lot of my a lot of my stuff is built on like Ajax requests. So uh, what you'll do with these is you have a controller that looks up your database, and then instead of rendering out a view, it will actually just send uh, JSON response into into how you've actually pinged that data. So um, that's kind of like I think the the one downside to to not using a more involved framework is every single time that I need to do something, um, I need to write another endpoint. Uh, for that specific task. All right, let's talk about front end. Uh, what do you use on your front end? How do you make things work? Yeah, so I use, uh, I'm actually on React 16. I have been since the like second release candidate or wow. third release candidate, um, which I think they, they were so they were so solid at that point anyways. It wasn't really uh, too crazy of an upgrade. And now I guess, what, yesterday, React 16 officially launched at the yep. time of recording this. And uh, so, yeah, so I've been on React for a while. Uh, ever since I've built this platform and uh, I'm a huge fan. I mean, it works really nicely, the component interface and stuff like that. So I use React for my views. I use um, Stylus for my CSS stuff, although I've been migrating to styled components and uh, pretty much anything new I'm making with styled components is sort of build up that component library, but it's, it's a pretty big project. So um, I haven't had the time to move everything over yet. It's still like um, as it, as, 
something new comes up, I will build out those components that I need for that something new. And if those components can be reused in the rest of my site, then I'll go through and refactor those areas to bring in those components and, uh, and that sort of stuff. Um, I don't use Redux for state management. And um, I, not because I don't like Redux, but because I don't really feel like I, I need it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, Meteor handles so much of that data pulling in. I'm not my data is not stored in Redux. So uh, what would I be using it for? I don't know, minor things like opening a navigation or a window here and there, opening the shopping cart. But I actually do that with just straight up session variables. There, um, Meteor has these things built in called, uh, they're just called session, session vars. And even in the Meteor community, a lot of people don't use these because they're totally global. But I think they're totally underutilized. What it is, it's basically a reactive um, local session variable so you're storing something in your local storage, right? And it's reactive. If it changes, that those updates will just filter on right down through. So, you know, my my main navigation, I just have a, a session var stored up there that's nav open or closed. That's it. And uh, I have a oh, cool. Meteor plugin that shows me all of my session vars across the whole thing. And since they're global, uh, you know, that that's it. But I don't have that much, that much state to worry about. You know, it's not like a, a crazy amount of of state so yeah yeah cool um so my front end I, again i built mine probably three or four years ago um and it's been working really well for me so i don't use a whole lot of the the most recent technology so most of my app is uh server side rendered it's it's not like scott's is done entirely in react and you you do do server side rendering right scott i don't i use no. a no i use a pre-render Pre-render.io to do my for for like um, you know web search crawlers and stuff like that whatever they're called search crawlers I don't know search engines <laughs> and for like, search engine optimization yeah. right so I use pre-render to 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 do that but uh, for the most part I just use really small JavaScript bundles and everything loads really quickly but cool. yeah I, I haven't to be honest I I've, I've had server side rendering going at a point and I didn't necessarily see. Um, any sort of performance benefit from it that I, I'm not seeing from the current system. That's pretty sweet. Cool. Well, um, mine is done uh, mostly all templated in um, in Jade or, or what is now known as Pug. Uh, and that's all templated out. I have um, sort of like a, an overarching um, course layout. Uh, and then I will modify i have these like sort of like sub layouts that that extend that and then modify it depending on on which course that we have so i've got a bunch of different index files for each of my courses um and then some shared stuff i have shared styles and and shared um mixins and whatnot in jade for things like listing out videos and, and showing modules and the videos that belong to that so uh it's pretty nice because i can share things through all of my my different domain names that i have um so that's once the HTML from Pug and Jade get to the browser, um, I then pick it up uh, with JavaScript. Um, most of the the courses are done in jQuery, um, which I've I've slowly been refactoring that over to just vanilla JavaScript because, quite honestly, at the end of the day, it, it doesn't need jQuery, it doesn't need React, it doesn't need anything because, um, like, what's happening? I'm I'm showing a modal box. I'm collecting your credit card data. I'm pinging Stripe's endpoint to get a token. Uh, and then I then take that token and ping my own backend with that token. And, uh, and then the backend will pick it up from there. So I'm really not doing a whole lot of heavy lifting, um, aside from some sharing of, 
data between all of my different domain names. Um, so th that's sort of where I'm transitioning to it now. But it's it's very low on my. I much rather spend my time um, on the back end, which is React. Um, the the whole course viewing experience, um, being able to to watch the courses, to skip through them, to fast forward, to change from uh, to, to bookmark specific videos and and whatnot. All of that is built in React and React Router. Um, and that's really where I'm spending my time lately is because I want the the course experience to I, like I think I've got the whole like marketing side down pat and I'm not too too concerned about the tech for that. Um, but the the course viewing experience is ex perfect for React because you can make this really slick interface without having a single page refresh or or, or anything like that. Nice, uh, which is pretty neat. Yeah. Um, uh, my CSS is all done in Stylus. Um, I've got lots of shared little components that I uh, share my Stylus between all of my sites because I have things like the login button and the frequently asked questions that all have a base CSS. And if I if I have an error on one of my sites, it's likely that I have an error on all of my sites. And being able to update just that one base CSS uh, will likely fix the bug across uh, absolutely everything. Um, on my on my free courses, so if you go to like JavaScript30.com or any of these other ones, um, that's all done in in vanilla JavaScript as well. Where that's pretty much just pinging my backend, and then on my backend, I've got a slew of checks that will check if you've already signed up for it, if you're doing it maliciously, if you're uh, trying to uh, hit the backend multiple times. Because I've had people maliciously try to pump thousands of email addresses into my uh, database at a time. So um, I don't use Redux or anything on my own uh, course site. Just again, it's it's not something that um, I necessarily need. Um, I don't have a whole lot of data for the course viewer. I've got like an object that contains the videos, an object that contains the user, an object that contains the user's progress that is sort of like synced with the back end there. Um, if I were to do it again, I would likely, and I'm, I'm likely going to be moving a lot of my stuff over to React Apollo. Mm -hmm. um, which will uh, allow me to just not not worry about any of the stuff again. Yeah, yeah, I um, am likely to be adding some Apollo to my stack as well. So it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, what else do I use? Uh, I use a. I've talked about this previously. I use a plugin called Cross Storage, which is from Zendesk, and and what that allows you to do is share local storage um, across all of it because because I am server rendered and because I am session based, not JSON web tokens. Um, if I want to be able to uh, share data from one domain to another, it's a little bit tricky because you have cross-origin policy not being able to do that. So um, I've spent some time implementing that, being able to, um, like, uh, like what I'll do is if you're logged in, I'll check if you have bought a course. And then if a course is on sale, I'm not going to show you that this course is on sale because you've likely you've already bought it. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's not something that you necessarily need to see. Just like little little things like that, being able to share the data between the different domain names that we have there. Yeah. Um, Super and important. I, I think that's that's all of my front end. It's uh, it's it's funny because all of my courses are very heavy front end, and uh, my course platform, aside from the the viewing experiences, um, is all done. Oh, and uh, sorry, that's that's the other thing I totally forgot is I have an administrative backend which is my own thing, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that is recently built, and I built that in uh, Next.js, which is a uh, a framework for building server side rendered React apps, um, and uh, that's great because like. 
I hate doing administrative stuff. So this thing is just so fast. You click something, it's all preloaded. Be able to search uh, for people based on any of their things, based on their email address, based on their name, based on what coupon they use, based on what course they use, how much they paid. Um, and then I can, I can modify all of that uh, data that you have there. And I also have team licenses as well. So when somebody buys a team license, they get like a special interface to be able to, to dole out those licenses. I used to have people email me who, who should go on their team license. Um, but that's just, that was a supreme waste of my time. So I built like this nice slick little interface that will be, give people the number of slots that they have. Uh, and then they can dole them out to, to teammates on their team. Nice. So you keep your, your administrative tools entirely separate. Yeah, like a yeah, totally it's separate platform. Only, only because uh, I I had built it at a later point. Yeah. Um, and and I wanted it to be like a really slick uh, interface for being able to manage all of my data. And I have all custom graphs and mm-hmm. uh, I'm able to like uh, filter down for how many sales that I have in the last week or how many sales of this course that I have. What is my like one thing I keep track of is what is my ratio of free courses to paid courses. And I try to like keep a uh, keep a close eye on like what, what that looks like. So, um, I've always wanted to have this, like just TV in my room where I have like my empire (laughs) and all of the stats coming in at once. And, and I'm slowly getting there. I don't have a TV yet, but, uh, at at some point I would like to have like the sort of like auto and that's it. That's the other thing is it's auto updating. Yeah. Um, because it's not WebSockets, it just it just pings the back end every every like 10, 10, 20 seconds or so. But uh, if it was WebSockets, like yours, yours is all real time, right? Yeah, yeah, mine mine's all real time, um, and that's actually uh, part of my like orders thing. You could just leave my orders page in the little graph, and I use Chart.js. Although I'm probably going to be moving off of Chart.js when I have a, a free second because it's pretty heavy compared to some others. There's like victory by formidable that looks really nice. But yeah. either way, it's all animated and fancy. So an order comes in and my little graph goes whoop and then, you know, animates in with each order that comes in. So I can just sit and leave this open in a window if I want to uh, and just keep an eye on it. What do you what do you use for your charts? Um, I actually had had brought in all these React chart libraries and then like I don't know. After a couple hours, I was like, none of this is working uh, mm-hmm. for me. Um, and really, what I what I have is I've got uh, here. I'll, I'll read them off right now. I have a block of of my revenue for the day or, or sales for the day um, in U.S. because that's what I bill in, and then I have that converted over to Canadian at the I, I pull in the the current exchange rate just to give me an idea of what that is in Canadian. Um, I, I it shows me how much I've paid out in like in processing fees to Stripe and PayPal. It shows me how much I've paid out to affiliates. Um, and then it shows me like a, a final profit number of like, this is the revenue minus all of your affiliates and your fees and, and all that stuff. And then it shows me like a, a, a profit number for, for what that is. Nice. Um, and then it gives me aggregates. So this is more like numbers, aggregates of how many paid products I have, how many, what's my paid to free ratio looking at right now. Um, and then I've got a little like mini chart for, um, I basically use Flexbox. Actually, it's pretty funny. Is I I've ta- I took all of my courses, um, and then I just like like right now, 129 people have signed up for my JavaScript 30, whereas uh, 54 people have signed up for my Redux, and and then I just apply Flex Grow of 129 and 54. That's smart. To, Super to that. smart. And then it just like kind of makes its own bar chart. And then when that data updates, uh, Flex Grow will transition because you can just apply a transition uh, Flex Grow one second and then it will just whoop, 
animate yeah. itself out or in, depending on how those numbers have it have adjusted themselves. Same I, goes for um, my affiliates as well. Sorry, go ahead. No, I think that's like the universal sound for little animations coming in here. That's the only yeah, that's the only sound <laughs> I can think of. Whoop. Yeah, yeah. That's I, that's I'm really pretty, smart. You don't need a library for that then. And and honestly, this this chart JS, like I said, is too heavy for what I'm doing. Yeah, anyways. I just couldn't figure it out. Like I was just so frustrated, and like I I also didn't need a chart that looked like that i just needed like the raw data in my face yeah and then to get a like a high level overview of like oh that's interesting my javascript 30 bar is twice the size of my redux bar that that means that twice as many people have have signed up for it and then you can like i can filter for like the last week last day 30 day we talked about this when we were talking about moment js i use yeah uh, i have this like filter that will filter it down for all the different days yeah likewise cool yeah, so that's uh, that's front end. Obviously, there's there's a lot that goes into to that. Want to take a quick break and talk about our sponsor, which is a course from Lauren Stewart, and the course is called Intro to the Serverless Framework with AWS and Node.js. So you've probably heard a lot of people talking about serverless, cloud functions, functions as a service. What what is that? Well, in, instead of building your app in like one monolithic. Uh, application, what you do is you build your application in these smaller, what are called cloud functions or serverless functions, where each function does a specific thing, whether it's scraping a website, resizing an image, uh, trimming a video, uh, or saving a sending an email, bringing something, saving something to a database. There's all kinds of different tasks that your application is going to do. And sometimes you're, and I know this myself, I just had a website crash on me. When your application gets really, really popular, uh, you need to scale up really, really quickly. And rather than just like, buy a very expensive server and then have to pay for that forever and ever. What you can do with uh, serverless in AWS's Lambda service is be able to just scale up. Like, let's say a lot of people are immediately resizing photos or you have a spike in traffic in one specific part of your website that needs needs a lot more hardware thrown at it. So uh, Amazon's AWS uh, Lambda function is going to scale up and you're going to just pay for that as you need it. So if you, if it's only for an hour that you need that extra work, it's going to spike up and then come down and you're not going to be paying for it over and over. So it's infinitely scalable. It only runs on an as needed basis. Uh, you're only paying for the execution time. Um, and it's just a really cool way. I'm seeing a lot more people build and architect their applications in this way. So if you want to learn all about that, then I definitely suggest that you check out this course. Um, and we've actually got a couple freebies to give away 20 free courses if you use the coupon syntax underscore free all caps um, and if you miss that that'll probably be gone within the first 15 minutes of this episode so uh, once those are gone use the coupon syntax for an extra 10 bucks off uh, the course so thanks so much to lauren stewart and his new course for sponsoring yeah so uh, what kind of asset hosting for me i have a lot of a lot of downloads i make um, most of my videos available for download as well as series, um, considering I have like 72 series on level up tutorials. Um, so that's a whole lot of content and I have images and thumbnails for all that stuff. So I host all of my, um, I host all of my downloads for like big, big stuff, like my, my series and stuff on Amazon S3. Um, just because that was the easiest one to get up and running with at the time. And it was sort of the de facto place to put all your stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, I haven't really had a need to migrate off of there. Although I, I 
heard you talking about Backblaze, I believe it is. Yeah. And so uh, I've been thinking about it. But yeah, so pretty much all my my series and everything like that are hosted. Um, my actual videos are all hosted on YouTube. Even the like premium series and stuff like that. I didn't want to write a video player and I didn't want to pay for video hosting. So I just have them as unlisted private series. And I wrote um, some code that will be able to just, I give it a, a playlist ID. And so no one on YouTube can see uh. this playlist. I give it a playlist ID and it imports into my thing. And then people who are, you know, subscribers who have access to that content, they can then watch this unlisted playlist, but they get all of the nice things like YouTube's encoding. They get um, all of, you know, all of the nice stuff you get with YouTube without having yeah. to actually make it be, you know, uh, public. So I, that's where I store my actual videos is on YouTube for everything. Um, uh, series downloads on a uh, S3, and then I host all of my images on Cloudinary. Um, I don't know if you've used them. No, it's sort of like an on-demand image thing. So basically, it's a image host that can do a ton of manipulation through URL. What's really nice about this is that a lot of these images that I'm using are actually pulled in as thumbnails from YouTube. So yep. what I can do is I use this. Cloudinary path where it's like cloudinary forward slash level up tuts forward oh. slash whatever. And then I just pass in the entire domain or the entire URL of the YouTube hosted image and it will pull that in to Cloudinary, generate a version of it at whatever dimensions I'm telling it. So I can give it like a hundred different dimensions. I could say at this screen size, give me that's you amazing. Know, whatever. Yeah. And so all of a sudden you get an image that's 300 pixels wide. And it's cached on their server, and it's perfectly optimized. And, and you then can, you can crop and you and can do all kinds of stuff. You can to do it. all kinds of stuff. I mean, you can do Instagram filters and stuff on it if you really wanted to. But for me, I just use it mostly for uh, the fact that you could have on on mobile a uh, particular image, and I don't have to write software to generate, you know, five different versions of this image. Cloudinary yeah. will just do it on demand That's and amazing. save and cache it. Did yeah. you, you know what this reminds me of is is way back in the, the WordPress days before we had the concept of uh, like a, a post thumbnail. There was no way to attach an image. So you had to do like a custom field. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you wanted to resize it, we had this thing called Tim Thumb. Yes, uh, and Tim then Thumb. Yeah. Tim Thumb did the exact same thing. <laughs> There's just like so many huge security. Uh, I remember just like every month having to upgrade my Tim Thumb because somebody could like execute remote code on, on your oh, server. Oh yeah, I know, so. I know. I remember Tim Thumb being a huge pain to get set up to occasionally. Yeah, or it was at needed, least on Drupal. You needed your server to, your PHP server to have like uh, whatever the, the package was to, to actually deal with images on the mm -hmm. server. Yeah. Yeah, so um, that's, that's pretty much it for this asset hosting. This was recommended to me by um, a friend of a friend, and I've been really just psyched because they have a really nice API on top of this, or you can just use these simple URLs and whatever. Their docs are good. Their um, their blog's good and 300, stuff like that. 300,000 images for free. Yeah, I know. The pricing's pretty outrageous, too. And if you do referrals, um, they, like, take take some off of your bill. So all I would have to do is put a link to the referrals in my YouTube account, and I think it'll be it in the show notes. Yeah, I should put that. I'll definitely put that in. Yeah, there. everyone, go and click Scott's link in the show notes and yeah. uh, let him get it. But for so free. I, I've been on this, and when I'm using like fifteen percent of my monthly bandwidth at the end of this month, and that's the free plan. I'm not paying anything for it. So. Oh really? Yeah. Oh wow! <laughs> I know it's it's that's pretty, amazing. It's pretty. I awesome. love I love things like that. Well, 
sometimes they don't because they they go out of business and then you're yeah but i guess as long as you have the the source image the original image that is yours it's fine because you can always find another service or build your own version of this exactly it's either always pulling the original image from my file system uh, in the app itself or from youtube's api so um it, these images would not be lost. If they shut down tomorrow, all I would do from my code is remove that part of the string in the image that says Cloudinary, and all the images would still work. They're not going to be Sweet. as optimized, but they'll work, you know. That's pretty neat. I never heard of this. I may have yeah. to to start using this. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Cool. So for mine, um, obviously what I do is uh, I stream all of my videos, and then I offer downloads as well. So uh, for the download side of things, I started with Amazon S3, and I didn't, like, at the time when I did my Sublime book, I didn't totally understand, like, what the point of CloudFront was. Mm. Uh, So I just threw it up on Amazon in Virginia, or wherever the closest one was, and then I got all these emails from Germany of, it's always slow in Germany for some reason. Uh, and I, I didn't totally understand it. And then somebody said, like, you know, you're you're hosting it in in uh, in the States. So it's very slow for the rest of the world. So um, I use Amazon S3 and then you put CloudFront in front of that. Uh, and then that will distribute it to all the different servers around the world and make it fast and cash it and do all that sort of like nice stuff for you, which is pretty, pretty neat. So yeah. that's what I was using for the longest time. And um my bandwidth bills were just absurd. And uh, part of that is because um, S3 and CloudFront are, they're expensive. Like it's, it's cheap, but like when you're doing sort of uh, moving as many gigs as I am, it, it starts to get pretty expensive. Um, I have many months where my mortgage was less than my Amazon S3 bandwidth bill. <laughs> uh, and the other thing was that I didn't totally understand like video compression. So I was uploading mm-hmm. these these videos, zip files that were like a gig or two gigs when they really could have been like 700 megs or something like that. Like I just recompressed my ES6 series and it went from like three gigs down to like one and a half gigs. So um, I was s- stupidly throwing uh, money out the door. Like I, I'm pretty sure that if I were to look at my Amazon bills, I'd probably pay over fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to to Amazon and just bandwidth bills. So that was mine. Um, and I've recently moved off of Amazon S3 over to Backblaze. So uh, Backblaze has always been the like uh, backup your computer. It's like Dropbox for your entire hard drive. And I've been using that for years. I, I always recommend it to people because. Um, it's sort of the like, oh shit moment where you accidentally delete something or your entire computer goes down. Um, this is passive backup. It always runs on your computer. Um, it's always backing up absolutely everything and you can restore parts or all of your computer. They'll even FedEx you a drive uh, whenever it is uh, if you're like sort of in a panic. So I was, I've been a big fan of Backblaze for a long time and then they recently announced this. Uh, well, they've had it for a while, but they have this thing called... Um, What's it called? B2. B2. And uh, they recently announced that it is going to be much cheaper than uh, Amazon S3, which is incredible. Let me just pull up the uh, Backblaze thing. Maybe you cut this out. I just want to pull up the pricing. Here we go. So uh, per gigabyte downloaded, uh, it is two cents. Whereas uh, on Amazon S3, it's five cents, 10 cents. Sometimes when people from India download my courses, it's like 11, 12 cents um, a thing. So it's like five, six times cheaper than using Amazon S3. And that's not even 
including the extra charge that you have for CloudFront on top of it. So uh, I moved almost, I think I've, I think at this point I've moved all my stuff over to Backblaze and my bandwidth bills have just like been sliced by like between uh, compressing my files properly and, and moving over to Backblaze. My bandwidth bills have gone from thousands a month to not even a hundred bucks, 200 bucks on like a launch month or something like that. So nice. Uh, very, very happy about this. The one thing that I, I haven't figured out is that Backblaze only has one uh, data center uh, where they, they serve their stuff up from. So I'm like, well, is that going to be a problem for people across the world? Um, and I actually haven't found uh, an answer to this, but I also have never received a single complaint about uh, the the downloads being slow like I did when I was on S3. Sure. Yeah, that's part of why I let YouTube foot the bill for most of my video hosting costs because uh, they have they have enough servers and enough everything to take yeah. care of that. Yeah, and, bandwidth. Yeah. I didn't realize how expensive bandwidth can be. Um, and then I, I should also talk about um, streaming um, all my videos. So what I do to stream my videos is I host them on Vimeo because again, if I were to to host them on one of the streaming services, it'd be very expensive, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why this is a thing, but Vimeo has like a $200 a year Vimeo unlimited Pro. bandwidth Vimeo Pro mm-hmm. where you can just stream away till your heart's content um, and it's pretty sweet. Uh, so I use Vimeo and I don't use the Vimeo player. I would love to use a Vimeo player because it's really nice. Um, it is just missing the ability to um, increase the speed the playback rate. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's just no button. There's no way you can like get into the Vimeo iframe and like run some JavaScript to, to speed it up, like add a button on the bottom or something like that, um, which like something like Wistia you can do. Uh, so I unfortunately had to code my entire player from scratch, um, which is just an HTML5 video player. And it has like captions and uh, the ability to speed things up and jump around and, and all that good stuff sort of built into it. But if you were to view source on any of these videos, they're all hosted on uh, Vimeo servers, which is great, except if you live in Indonesia because it is blocked <laughs> and it sucks. If you live in Indonesia, you have to download my courses. Wow. Yeah. So that's where I host everything um, and my images. Um, I host some of my images on S3 and some of my images on Backblaze. Um, I did have them on my my just my regular uh, DigitalOcean server, uh, which is not a good idea because I was just um, just my CPU would spike when I was uh, like when I launched my JavaScript 30. There was I don't know like eight thousand people on the website at once, and the whole, like the server was falling over, uh, and I realized it was because I was serving up static images directly from my DigitalOcean server. So I moved all those over to S3 in, mm-hmm. in a hurry to try to fix it, and that f- immediately fixed it for me. Yeah, and this is, it's funny with these platforms where we build our own platforms, and, and essentially we are reinventing the wheel over and over again because so many other people yeah. just be like, well, duh, of course that's going to happen, right? Yeah. But like, it's a nice learning experience. It's not hurting anyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> for me, I, I, I like appreciate those moments because th- there's so many of those moments that, that really build out some of the best learning experiences like oh this is why people say not to do that yeah oh i should have listened for these reasons but yeah uh definitely i i didn't run into that myself but i think on another project i had some sort of issue where and then all of a sudden it was just totally understood why people separate their concerns so much because um if your server goes down your whole site's going down and nobody's doing anything so um it's better something else is sharing the load you know 
Uh, I also use CloudFront for my CDN, by the way. Oh, okay. And just because it's, I don't know, easy easy to integrate. Yeah. 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 It's it's super simple. You just flip it on, and then you just change your, your you you set up CloudFront to go in front of a bucket, and then you just change your URL to. Uh, a different bucket name, and then it will automatically distribute them around the world. It's it's pretty nifty. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so uh, testing, do you do any sort of testing on your platform? Um, not a whole lot. Um, I have some stuff that's done in Mocha. I had written a bunch of it uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and then and now anytime that I, uh, I do write a new controller, I'll, I'll write that in Mocha just because that's what I've got set up. But mm-hmm. uh, for my new stuff, what I've been doing is uh, writing it all in Jest. I just haven't integrated that into my um, into my new my course platform just yet. So that's that's sort of on my. Eventually, what I want to do is uh, have somebody help me on my own course platform because there's a lot of things that I would like to do, um, and I think it needs to be a little bit better tested before I let somebody run wild uh, in changing stuff inside of the cor- course platform. Yeah, I was uh, you know. I, I've been wondering a lot about that too. I, I'm actually very interested in Jest because I've very briefly used it. Like I, I fired it up, I ran a snapshot, and I did did that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I haven't used it pretty extensively. I use Mocha Chai pretty pretty heavily in my testing, and then there's this Meteor package, uh, Practical Meteor, Meteor Mocha, and just like the Meteor testing environment. So it's really nice if you run Meteor in the testing mode, it like pops up in another window and you get this whole visual interface for your test passing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You just server client tests or, or whatever. But um, the for a long time, I think the Meteor testing thing was sort of all over the map and people were just trying to figure out what was the right way. And then eventually Meteor came out with an opinionated, this is how to do testing on Meteor. And everything's been good since then. Everything's been really nice. And so um, just pretty much have gone with straight out of their docs as to... Um, my, my dog is flipping out. Uh, every <laughs> everything just straight out of their docs, and and that's pretty much it. Cool. And we're also going to have a show on testing coming up. That's going to sort of dive into the different types of testing, like unit testing and integration testing, and and whatnot, to maybe clarify some of those stuff. Because I know a lot of people have been asking qu- me questions about that. Um, let's talk about APIs uh, up next. So, is there any external services that uh, you interface with on your your stack? Yeah, I rely pretty heavily on the YouTube API, um, and I've been on the YouTube API since it was like version one or two, so it's really nice to see uh, how it's grown and stuff like that. And uh, I use this thing, I have a an admin tool I call the Importizer. All of my admin tools end in Izer, so I have like the Series Izer, <laughs> the Download Izer, or, or some of them I have the Affiliator. affiliator. Um, but yeah, the Importizer. Uh, the importizer uh, basically will just hit up the API and I, I bring everything into my local or into my Mongo database. So stuff's all stored in the database, but um, basically I pass in a playlist ID, it grabs everything, it saves it to the database, whatever, and then I can hit that API whenever I want to update it. But I'm not ever really necessarily hitting the YouTube API to load the series because I just have too much I want too much control over it, right? I don't want things to come out of YouTube directly into my site. I want to be able to tweak it and modify it, uh, you know, as I need. So I use the YouTube API to basically bring in and save everything to the database. And then I uh, have recently moved over to Braintree for my payments system. So Braintree and, uh, uh, yeah, and I still use, I still have Stripe integrated. I have... um, a lot of legacy stuff on the Stripe stuff. What I need to deal with is is how many 
um, basically the people who have had subscriptions and purchases and everything with Stripe, I want to be able to have um, all of that still up and running while I transition over to Braintree until obviously all of my new subscribers are on Braintree. Yeah. Uh, and within that system. So I use both of those. Um, and then I mentioned before pre-render for basically um, pre-rendered versions of my site. Uh, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Just YouTube and Braintree are the, the two heavy ones right now. Cool. How about you? I'm, I'm pretty much the same. Um, I use Stripe uh, and PayPal. So I communicate with their APIs in order to uh, transact. Um, I use apifixer.io to pull in uh, my exchange rates. Um, that's just for my own administrative dashboard. I don't show any exchange rates on the actual website. Although that's something I maybe like to uh, to experiment with because showing it in U.S. dollars. Maybe I don't know. Maybe people who don't live in the U.S. can tell me this. Do you prefer when a website tells you the prices in your local currency or in in U.S.? Yeah, um, I'm interested in this as well. I actually have it on my to do list for the next release of my site to have international uh, pricing conversions, but. Mm-hmm. I would be interested in knowing if that's something that people really would like to see. Because if they would, yeah, that that's they'll get bumped up priority list. Yeah, and then I I work with the Vimeo API as well, which uh, so I'll, I'll put all my videos to Vimeo and put them in a collection. And then when I want to pull down a list of of videos to to interface with my um, w- both with the front end, like the the main page, I want to pull in a list of videos along with their titles. Uh, and and thumbnails and everything that sort of comes in from the Vimeo API as well as uh, when people want to watch the videos on the back end that all comes from the Vimeo API as well. So those are the the only three. I don't do a whole lot of external touching I, other than email. Maybe we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, I use external services for that as well. Mm. So l- let's uh, let's actually yeah, just keep I guess that rolling. That, yeah, I was gonna say I <laughs> guess I, that is an API. I use Mandrill for email sending, although. Uh, you know, Mailchimp, Mandrill probably isn't like the cheapest, uh, best solution. It's just what I've been on for so long, and I haven't had the time or energy or anything to move off of Mandrill slash Mailchimp. So that that's where I'm at. Awesome. I was on Mandrill for for the longest time, um, and then uh, what happened is they, I think that they had some sort of they either weren't making money with it or they had abuse because they yeah, that were giving tier. ten thousand cents out. I know. Um, I love that free tier. And uh, it was very poorly handled. I, I really like Mailchimp as a company, but uh, the uh, Mandrill, what they did is they just shut it down <laughs> within like like two weeks or something like that. Um, and then you can only use it if you have a paid Mailchimp account. Uh, which I don't. I don't use Mailchimp. I use uh, uh, Drip to send all of my email out. So um, luckily, and this is like a lesson. I didn't use any proprietary Mandrill package. I used just SMTP. Yeah. Um, I use a package called Node Mailer, and Node Mailer will just interface with SMTP. So I was able to just swap out my credentials um, real quick. I, I moved to Amazon SES Simple Email Service um, for uh, a long time. Um, but I had some, some issues with deliverability on that. And, uh, apparently like people were telling me that like, that's where like a lot of spammers go to send their email. Uh, Uh. your deliverability isn't great. Uh, so, uh, I, I didn't, and also like when people would tell me like, Hey, I didn't get my email. I would be like, I don't know. I don't know where it is. Like, I, I don't know what happened because uh, Amazon gives you absolutely nothing, no information, no insight into that. Whereas like Mandrill and what I use now is called Postmark, um, which I tried out a whole bunch of them and, and Postmark was the best. Hmm. will give you activity for every single person. So if someone tells me, hey, I'm not getting an email, 
um, I can go into the activity for their email address and see every single email that they've ever, ever been sent out. It saves a copy of what that email looks like. It tells me how many times they've opened it, when they've received it, if it's bounced. Um, sometimes people have really restricted um, IT departments that restrict email um, from from people that are not internal. So I can tell them like, hey, it actually can't, it actually bounced back. You have to talk to your IT department to to allow my domain name in. So a big fan of of Postmark yeah. uh, over the years. And it's so cheap. Like I think like how many how many credits? If you want to send half a million email, it's a dollar per one thousand emails that's sent out. So it's it's almost nothing. I'm gonna get on this because uh, not because I don't like Mandrill or whatever. Uh, but it is expensive, and I, I'm paying for that right now. So this looks really nice. And I, like you, I'm not using any Mandrill-specific library or anything. So yep. it, it would be as simple as me just swapping that out. So The one thing you, you need to be really nice. careful about is um, Mandrill automatically encodes their URLs so that the URLs go through their system, and that's the way that they can track clicks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they shut it down, they just killed all of my Mandrill links. And I was like, what the hell? I have like, I've sent out like 300,000 emails, all that have Mandrill links in it. Oh, now geez. you just killed all of my, my links. Um, and then they said, you have to, you have to formally close your account for the links to start working again. Oh my God. So yeah, that-, I, that was so stressful. And now I make sure that uh, the links go directly to my server. Should Postmark ever go under, uh, then the the URLs aren't going to go through because the amount of email that I got of people being like, hey, Wes, something's wrong with your links. And it's like, it's not me that they're just being fed through uh, intermediary. Jeez. So that's yeah, a little that's, uh, uh, lesson learned there. And yeah, that's I don't a rough care one. about clicks anymore because um, I just want to see. Uh, I just want the links to get to the people uh, <laughs> without having someone in between there. Nice. So, okay, APIs, let's talk about hosting. Uh, where do you host at? You said digital, I mean, you've mentioned DigitalOcean several times, so I'm guessing DigitalOcean? Yeah, actually, can we talk about email real quick a bit more? Yeah, let's talk about email. Um, let's cut that back. Yeah, I'll cut it back. Um, a couple more things about my email setup. Um, I, I write all of my emails in Pug or Jade, um, and then I feed them through this thing called Inky, which is, um, I think it's called, it's now called uh, Foundation for Emails. Mm. It's from the Zurb folks yeah. that run the Foundation Framework. Um, and essentially what that gives you is rather than having, as we know, writing HTML emails is just a nightmare. So uh, what it does is it, it's sort of like React components where you just like write a button tag or like a column tag, and then it will convert it to whatever the like terrible um, HTML inline yeah. CSS and <laughs> HTML that it is. So uh, I use that Inky to convert the Zurb HTML to regular HTML. Um, and then I use a package called Juice, which will take my CSS and inline it all because you need to have, for most email clients, you need to have all of your CSS inlined uh, into your actual uh, elements that are, that are on the page. So uh, it's sort of like it's like three or four steps to to send out an email, but I have that all automated uh, from compiling the Jade template to inline to actually sending it off to to Postmark to send it to the customer. Nice. I, I use something. I guess maybe not that similar, but I, I just have basically straight up HTML email templates. I'm bringing those in and then modifying them with um, like a mustache mustache yep. templating, and then um, bringing my data in, rendering it that way, and then shooting it out um, through meteors built in email dot send. So that's, that's pretty much it. Nothing crazy. Awesome. 
Uh, let's talk about hosting. Uh, once you have your app, where do you put it uh, online? Yeah. So for a long time, I hosted on um, DigitalOcean. I actually still host most of my stuff on DigitalOcean, like my personal site and client work and any sort of that stuff goes up on uh, DigitalOcean. And forever and ever and ever, uh, Level Up Tutorials was hosted there as well. But um, Meteor has their own host called Galaxy, which was actually pretty reasonable for pricing for containers. It used to be like super expensive when they launched it. And then they they dialed it back quite a bit and had some more entry-level things. Because I I don't get an insane amount of traffic that I need to be paying an insane amount. Um, but of course it, you know, gives you the ability to scale, but the features yeah. on, on galaxy just kept getting so much better and better and better that I was just like, man, why am I, why am I worrying about my own server where I have to worry about security and all this stuff like this, when I can take a, a container approach to this and just run a one, one, you know, deploy command or whatever, and, uh, get an interface where I can roll back versions if I need to. Um, I get access to just increasing. I mean, it, it's basically like, it's a lot like Heroku. If you use Heroku where you can increase containers, increase container size or any of that yeah. stuff. Um, and it, it gives you things like pre-render, uh, built-in pre-render. So, um, yeah, it, I've been really psyched with it. At first when it came out, I was pretty skeptical. Um, it's one of those things you don't want to go put up on a host if it's not a major company that you, you know, you have no idea if Meteor Galaxy is going to be around forever or whatever, yeah. but it, it, it just, the, the features and everything were so nice. And, and at the end of the day, the price was going to be the same. So, uh, I, I made that jump and I've been just super psyched about it because, there's nothing more that I dislike than trying to uh, manage and keep my server up to date and all that sort of stuff. Have to deal with server stuff is really just not my my forte, and I don't think yeah. it ever will be necessarily. So uh, yeah, I, I'm I host on Galaxy. Everything else on DigitalOcean, though, big fan uh, of them still. That's sweet. Yeah. So I am currently on uh, DigitalOcean as well. I've been on them for for a long, long time. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's working pretty well. Um, and it's kind of neat because you can do like we talked earlier about this like a concept of a floating IP. So um, you can run a couple servers running your app and you can cut over to the to the other one without a whole lot of downtime or any yep. downtime in that and whatnot. So um, and what's nice is that uh, the documentation for DigitalOcean is really good. You can always find ideas. Um, but at the end of the day, you still are managing a server. So there's security updates that need to happen. There's, um, if you don't have enough memory, I had to set up like a swap memory in order mm-hmm. to, to, do, to do some stuff on there. Um, and I just don't like having to, to maintain um, a server at the end of the day uh, for this kind of stuff. So I, I'm looking at moving over to uh, now.sh, which is uh, from Zeet, they do Next.js, which is my favorite <laughs> React framework, and mm-hmm. uh, Hyper, which is the terminal that I use. So um, they do this concept of like immutable deploys, and I think this is similar to what you're talking about, where uh, you deploy your app to to now, um, and then when you deploy it a second time, it will just give you it gives you a new domain name for every single deploy that you have, um, and then you can alias your main domain name over to the other one. So right now when I need to restart my app, I have about three seconds of downtime and it's not a big deal, but every now and then I get people sending me screenshots of like they, they hit it at exact time that I reboot my app. Um, and, and then they say like, Hey, you're, you're down. And I'm like, just refresh. It's up again. But, 
uh, with with now, what you can do is it will just cut over the the alias, the domain name alias, to the new URL, and you have zero seconds of downtime. Yeah, uh, for that kind of thing. And I love this stuff because you don't have to worry about it. I mean, with Galaxy, like you have multiple containers, right? It, the site's always going to be available, right? Yep. Regardless if if one of them is down, another one's going to be up, or any of that stuff. Um, so yeah, big fan of that. I've also hosted a lot of stuff on Heroku before too, which can get kind of costly, but uh, same sort of deal, really nice. Where did you host before DigitalOcean? That's a so I've always been on DigitalOcean for my my course platform for since it's it started. Um, but but for my other stuff, um, I've been on Bluehost for my own personal website and a bunch of family members' websites for a long time. Um, I, I now regret that because uh, they did some shady stuff where uh, what they did is they went into every single word because like 80% or 90% of Bluehost is just WordPress installs. Um, and they went in and turned on a very aggressive caching plugin on everybody's WordPress install without like without telling them or doing anything like that. So I like just pissed away four hours being like, why won't this update? Uh, and then I, I looked into it and I was Googling all these error messages and it turned out that they went in there and uh, flipped it on, which is such a shady move. So I highly recommend you never use Bluehost ever. Um, so I've been recommending because like these hosts can get expensive when a lot of times people just need like a, a cheapo $5 a month. So um, what seems to be everyone's recommending these days is, is SiteGround if you just need a quick uh, PHP host to, to throw something up on like nice. that. Yeah. All right. Do you remember Media Temple? I think that was yes. the original home of Level Up Tutorials was Media Temple. And then, then they got bought by GoDaddy and I noped out of that so quickly because that's the last thing <laughs> I, had, I wanted to deal with. I had dinner with a lot of the uh, Media Temple people once and they're very um, they're very separate from GoDaddy because they're like, they, they talk about GoDaddy as being their rich uncle. Yeah. Uh, being like, by the way, GoDaddy, if or by the way, Media Temple, if you want to sponsor this podcast, come on over. Oh, um, yeah. No, I, well, that said, you no, know, I never had any issues with Media Temple. And in fact, yeah. I didn't even wait to see if there was going to be any issues. It was simply they got bought and I just was. Yeah, I, I was get out of there. Yeah, I was out of the, there. You didn't know what. GoDaddy. You didn't know what the future would hold. And at that point, uh, it was at the same time that um, DigitalOcean was becoming like very, very popular. So it was like, yeah, okay, I'll check this out, you know, kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely nothing against Media Temple. Their service was great the whole time I had it. Yeah, I was on them for a while and I it got expensive for me. Yeah. Um, just for what I was using at the time, WordPress hosting. Um, so I, uh, I cut over to, to Bluehost and moved everything off of Media Temple. But it looks like they now also do, um, like they do managed hosting. So you can use Amazon servers, but they will manage it for you, which is interesting. kind of neat. Um, I don't know. It's not really something I need. I, I think that like as I'm getting older, um, I much rather pay a little bit more for yeah. a service like now and have them deal with it rather than be like, oh, five bucks a month. I can like host my entire world and my bandwidth bills are cents every month, right? I, I don't care that much anymore. I'd rather just have it work and, and not have to, it, especially with like things like SSL. Um, like I have to like, like, like a couple Sundays ago, I had my Let's Encrypt auto renew, mm-hmm. but I forgot to set up a cron job to reboot Nginx. Mm. So I was, everyone's like tweeting me like, oh, your sites are like, what's wrong with your SSL certificates? They're all broken. And I was like, oh shit, like what happened? Like Sunday I had to bring out the laptop. I hate yeah, doing that. Right. And then, yeah. uh, 
and I just had to like type nginx s reload and everything worked again. Uh, obviously, it's a it's a quick cron job that you can have, but I don't want to have to fi- figure out that cron job and and make sure that it's working. I just want it to work and I want to enjoy my weekends. I know that's a huge pet peeve of mine. I feel like SSLs are one of those things that I feel like they're one of those things that if you have a, a like a a future facing host or whatever, a nice, nice host, and you want an SSL, it should be click this button, give me an SSL. And I don't want to have to do anything else about it. Because yeah. there's nothing worse than having to, to, you know, generate your, your certificate and do all that stuff and upload to your server. It, it could be so much easier than that. And yeah, uh, yeah whatever. Although I, I should say Let's Encrypt is once you have the cron job in place, it is, is very, very quick. Like I can, I can do an SSL for a site and validate it uh, with like a custom. Let's see, I had to write a custom nginx config to yeah. to be able to validate it. But once it's up, I can I can kick out a new site real quick. I should also say before everyone tweets me about uh, Cloudflare, I do use Cloudflare in front of all of my websites as well. Um, that helps both mitigate DDoS attacks. Um, it helps cache stuff. Uh, it helps save on your bandwidth bills for things like images. Um, and then it also gives you a free SSL cert uh, where it's it sits on top of your existing server and will give you SSL, no problem. But uh, I, I still want to make sure that my traffic between my server and CloudFront is encrypted as well as from CloudFront to the end user. So I, I run SSL certs on both. Mm-hmm. And that way, that that way, I can turn off CloudFront at any time, and my and another SSL cert will sort of pick up the slack there. Word. Cool. Um, what else we got? I think we're running a little bit uh, over on time here. We got any other stuff to, to talk about in terms of what our stacks look like? Yeah, I guess just future plans, uh, things you want to see out of your platform coming in the future, and then we can do sick picks. Peace out. Yeah. Um, I think I, I want to rewrite my uh, checkout flow. Um, there's a couple issues with my checkout flow right now. One, I'm using placeholders instead of labels, which is a little bit confusing when people check out. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like uh, my coupon code flows up a little bit funny. People often put the coupon code in the credit card form and flip over to PayPal. And then the coupon code didn't apply to PayPal. And they're like, what's going on? I put it in. And so there's like a couple like little things here and there that that I'd like to to sort of make easier. I would like, after our uh, talking about our Stripe episode, I would like to try bring Stripe JS back um, rather than running it myself. If, if you want to listen to that episode, you can figure out how I built my own interface to Stripe JS. But, but like the whole Apple Pay and Bitcoin, I would love to be able to just turn those things on yeah. uh, and, and start accepting them. So that's that's in my very new feature is a rewrite of the, the checkout flow. Cool. Yeah, since I just rewrote my checkout flow, thankfully that's been crossed off of my future <laughs> plans. And I, I, I must say, I really am really loving the new checkout process. I know the last time we recorded, it had just launched. And after like two weeks or a week now, it's been really super nice. So uh, pretty psyched with that. But yeah, so I think the, the future for me would be, um, as much as I love Meteor, you never know what the future may hold. So maybe using less Meteor stuff here and there. So maybe start to look into integrating more Apollo in into my data layer instead of relying entirely on Meteor, just to I don't know, see if it, it it's um see if it's a, a way to for the future. You know, right now everything's working fine though, so that one is obviously not going to happen anytime soon. Um, and then if the site if the site is really growing in in state, then potentially looking to 
some sort of more managed state system, um, something like Redux. I don't love Redux, if I'm being entirely honest. I, I like what Redux does, but I don't love it itself. Don't hate me. Um, Apollo. I know. Yeah. So, <laughs> Um, and then there's a uh, server-side rendering, which I, I would add, but like I said, I, I, when I did have it, I didn't necessarily see the performance benefits. I'm not necessarily getting the SEO benefits, but it would be nice to have. I mean, um, just from a, a standpoint of when you hit the site, it would be nice to have that HTML already there instead of having to resort to JavaScript to load it all up. So yeah. Uh, those are those are some some future plans, but overall, I think a lot of the stuff is adding features, features, features for me. So, like a lot of the stuff for subscribers, there's like a, a billion features I want to add for subscribers here and there. And um, luckily, my platform flexible enough; it's going to allow me to to just do that as I as I can. But yeah, pretty much it for me. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, I think with myself, it's always tough to to manage. Uh, just geeking out on my platform, whereas like where I should be spending my time is uh, customer experience and developing new content. So yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of like a delicate balance that we try to have there. And that's why I still have jQuery running on all my sites because it works fine and I'm doing just fine. Uh, who knew you could still make money with a website running jQuery? I know. I, I would actually be interested to calculate how much money I lost by spending like a couple of hours removing jQuery from my <laughs> site. It's like, it really probably wasn't hurting my load times that much. Um, that said, my load times are nice. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's let's get into sick picks. Awesome. What do you got for me today? Yeah. So I'm going to go with something that uh, people ask a lot about is uh, my audio interface, which is, uh, I believe you have the same one, the Focusrite uh sapphire the red box the scarlet 2i2 is what i have yes okay so this is uh this is the Focusrite scarlet 2i2 it's basically an audio interface it allows you to plug in xlr or or, or just uh, any audio cables essentially and digitally convert them to your computer so if you're doing any sort of audio recording instead of using maybe like a usb mic or something like that you're going to get a little bit better pre preamps and stuff a little bit better sound it's sort of like the next step up from the uh, entry level like podcaster's microphone right yeah. so uh, and this thing is entry level you're not going to spend a ton of money. I think it's like a hundred something. Um, let's check. It's not very expensive. 140 bucks. Um, super simple. Plug it in USB, whatever. And uh, it, it just works. I, I've paid for way more expensive um, audio interfaces before. I used to use an Apogee. Uh, I don't remember the exact model, but it was expensive. And it was really fancy and nice, but at the end of the day, actually it broke. So, uh, (laughs) you know, two years and it's gone. And then I had another one, which is an M-Audio M-Box. Well, it was actually owned by uh, DigiDesign at that point. So DigiDesign M-Box, which interfaced with Pro Tools. And and it was like the top of the line, nice little box for, you know, uh, using Pro Tools if you're like a hobbyist. And then they never updated their drivers and it's dead it's it's just dead weight sitting in my closet luckily this thing is just nice and easy no super proprietary anything and it just works that sounds pretty sweet yeah i have again i have the exact same one and uh it's really cool like right now i'm 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 being a true uh radio personality where i i hear myself i have feedback in my my ears of i can hear myself talking and sounds pretty cool the next step, if you want to get really radio, you got to take one ear out of your headphones. You got to get a, yeah, you got to do one really? ear. Yeah, check it out. Yeah. Why don't I just get those like beats that you can 
Beats by Dre that you can like <laughs> swoosh back. Yeah, swoosh. My sick pick is uh, not the the website Hotwire, which uh, if you've never used it before, it's like this website where you can um, you just book a hotel in a general area and it tells you how many stars and the amenities, but you don't know the actual name of the hotel. Um, there's this website called betterbidding.com, which will allow you to like match up the location and amenities with a list of a hotel. Um, and every single time that I've used it, I've nailed exactly what hotel it actually is. So you can get some, I'm going to New York in a couple of weeks and, uh, we want to get a nice hotel, but I didn't want to like pay full price. So, uh, I went on, on Hotwire and I was able to, to sort of look that up, um, and, uh, and, and see it. So it's betterbidding.com. They have this little thing where you can like click through and figure out and do a little detective work to figure out what that hotel is. Thanks for tuning into another Syntax. We'll catch you in the next one. Yeah, see ya. Head on over to syntax.fm for a full archive of all our shows. Don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player and drop a review if you like this show. Until next time, peace.